Hello, and welcome back to part three of this first episode, Birth of an Idea. If you would like to know what is coming up, then you can quickly go back to the end of part two, where I outlined the plan for this episode. Now, let's jump back into it. Napoleon needed men for his many campaigns and had to rely on his allies to help provide them, as France did not have enough alone. The Kingdom of Italy was up to this task, and by 1810 it had 50,000 men under arms, and most of the officers were Italian. Italians would fight all over Europe, from Russia in the east to Spain in the west. From 1809, the Peninsular War required three Italian divisions, and here the conditions were so bad, the men sometimes had to live off grass soup and bread made of acorns and crushed olive stones. Of the 30,000 Italians the kingdom sent to Spain, only 9,000 returned, many of them wounded. A further 27,000 fought with Napoleon in Russia, where conditions were even worse, in a campaign where very few returned. Tens of thousands of Italians were lost in the Napoleonic army, yet all remained loyal until the end. Many patriots were forged in the shared experiences and suffering of these years, including one Giuseppe Garibaldi. As the Italic army was the first institution in centuries that brought together key members of the North Italian elite in a common enterprise. Napoleon also helped in this creation of patriotic sentiment, as, although typically ambivalent of his attitude to the national question, he was quite happy for patriotic feelings to be nurtured among the Italian regiments as a way of promoting Espirit de Corps. The Italian language was declared the common medium of communication and dialects were discouraged, and officers were told to foster bonds of fraternity among the troops by appealing to the idea of an Italian patria. The extent of the loyalty troops developed towards the army of the Kingdom of Italy and their fellow compatriots in such a short amount of time was remarkable, as is exemplified by them remaining loyal and fighting alongside France right until the end. Even when Austrian troops were closing in and many of Napoleon's other allies had already flipped sides. There was a particularly strong coat of the flag in the army. The tricolore became a powerful symbol of their collective identity and suffering, 
and in the spring of 1814, when under the terms of the armistice of Schiarino Rizzino, Italian units were supposed to become incorporated into the Austrian army, there was widespread resistance, and rather than hand over their flags, troops preferred instead to burn them, divide up the ashes, and sometimes eat them in soup. The idea of the Italian army as the school of the nation was a powerful legacy to a united Italy, as they were torn away from their sleepy provincial backwardness and mobilised into a huge European enterprise, both civil and military. Obviously, however, not everyone joined the military. Although some conscription was in place, many people were able to get around this through wealth and sometimes convenient medical illnesses, leaving much of the pressure to fill the ranks of the army on the peasants. Many of the peasants, who were already angry with the Napoleonic religious policies, high taxes, and wars affecting their quality of life, found that being forcibly conscripted to fight in the army was a step too far, and thus many resisted. Resistance would take the face of secret societies, political agitation, and open brigandage. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, the greatest levels of resistance was in the south, after France retook control in 1806. Here, the British and the Bourbons in exile in Sicily added a further dimension to the turmoil by giving military and financial support for both bandits and rebels. The result? was five years of brutal guerrilla warfare, with much of it concentrated in the Calabria and Abruzzi regions, in which some 20,000 French soldiers were killed. There was little that was patriotic about this violence, certainly in the sense of fighting for some idea of Italy, though some of the rebels undoubtedly felt inspired by feelings of loyalty to the king and to the church. Appalling atrocities were perpetrated on both sides. Prisoners were quite regularly castrated, flayed, impaled, crucified or burned alive. Giuseppe Rotella was justly nicknamed the Executioner, while Capo Scapita was reputed to dine with the flesh from the freshly severed heads of his enemies. The French replied with similar ruthlessness. In July 1806, Napoleon told his brother Joseph Bonaparte to Grant no pardons, 
execute at least 600 rebels. Let the houses of at least 30 of the principal heads of the villages be burned and distribute their property among the troops. Disarm all the inhabitants and pillage five or six of the villages that have behaved worst. Confiscate the private property of the rebellious villages and give it to the army. Joseph complied, and by December 1806, some 4,000 rebels have been killed on site in three provinces of the Abruzzi alone. The most famous rebel was a regular soldier and bandit, Michele Pezza, known as Fra Diavolo, Brother Devil. Pezza had apparently earned his nickname while still a child as a result of his unruly character and a vow that his mother had made to San Francesco di Paolo, which she had kept, to dress her son as a monk if he ever recovered from a serious illness. After murdering two men in the mid-1790s in a dispute over honour, he had fled to the hills and formed a bandit gang, but had been given a pardon in return for enrolling in the Bourbon army. In 1799, he had joined Cardinal Rufo's Christian army, leading a force of several thousand notoriously bloodthirsty volunteers, and he had played a prominent part in the overthrow of the Neapolitan Republic and subsequent attack on their French garrison in Rome. As a reward for his services, King Ferdinand had given him 2,500 ducats and promoted him to colonel. When the French invaded the Kingdom of Naples at the beginning of 1806, Petzer emerged once again at the head of a force of irregulars, harrying the French mercilessly and conducting a reign of terror in the towns and villages of Campania, all in the name of King Ferdinand. He was supported by the British, who in July landed a force in Calabria and defeated the French at the Battle of Maida. In the wake of this victory, Petza tried to start a rising in southern Italy, but with little success. A huge bounty of 17,000 ducats was now on his head. The French were bent on capturing him. The officer entrusted with hunting him down was Sigbert Hugo, father of the great poet Victor. Petzer's men were routed near Campobasso. Petzer himself escaped, but he was caught soon after and turned over to the French after being wounded by rival bandits. He was promptly put on trial. British requests to have him considered a prisoner of war were rejected, 
and on the 11th of November, 1806, he was executed in Naples as a common criminal. The King and Queen of Naples hurried to show their gratitude to Fra Diavolo and celebrate his achievements despite his highly checkered career. A solemn mass was held for him in the Church of St. John the Baptist in Palermo, attended by numerous political dignitaries and a detachment of British soldiers, and with the Archbishop officiating. Inscriptions proclaimed Petz's noble virtues in glorious deeds and the joy he had experienced in dying for his fatherland. The support of the authorities for criminal figures such as Petza was to be an alarming feature of political life in southern Italy for years to come and was to make for the imposition of the rule of law hard to achieve. By 1811, the French had established an uneasy control over the South, with a reduction in overt banditry. But during this time, there was a great increase in the number of secret societies. Secret societies became prominent all over Italy during the Napoleonic era. In the Kingdom of Italy, many of the 40,000 deserters of the army found refuge in one of the many societies, such as the Society of Rays, who held a policy of national unification, of liberal sects of Philadelphia and Adelphia of the longer-standing Freemasons. But the most important of the secret societies was that of the Carboneria, or charcoal burners. It may have first infiltrated Italy in the 1790s, but only began to grow significantly after 1806 in the Kingdom of Naples, in part thanks to support from the British. The members of the Carboneria, Carbonari, were proudly united in their opposition to Napoleon, the fat wolf who had killed the Republic, and to French rule, and in their desire for Italian independence. The basic unit was a local cell called the Vendita, with a group of Vendite being controlled by a vendita madre, which in turn answered to an altar vendita. Initially, there appeared to have been just two grades, those of apprentice and master, but at some point a third grade was added, that of grandmaster. With each grade came a new initiation ceremony, rituals, and catechism, and access to a new level of knowledge. All carbonari were required to be armed with a musket and bayonet 
and to pay a monthly due to their vendita. In the most common version of the initiation ceremony, the grade of master, candidates were told how Jesus, grand master of the universe, was the perfection of humanity, and how he had become the victim of the cruelest tyranny for having tried to educate the people and free them from slavery. The candidate then had to take the part of Jesus in an elaborate reenactment of his trial before Pontius Pilate, and at the climax of the crucifixion, swear loyalty to the Carbonaria. At the highest levels, the rituals became more political. The candidate, carrying an acacia branch and a skull, was brought into a blue room decorated with white, red, black and green festoons and the image of an acacia tree with on either side of it the letters L and E standing for liberty and equality and at its base a lump of coal, an axe and a dagger tied together with a white red and black ribbon. The lieutenant, standing at a table, drew back a cloth to reveal a vessel containing a red liquid and said, Behold, this blood, it was gathered from the severed veins of the tyrant in the last moments of his criminal existence. Pour some of it into his skull and drink it to seal your union with us. The candidate knelt, declaring his undying hatred of tyrants, and swore to devote all his strength to destroying them. He was then taught the greeting sign, the right hand with the fingers crooked on the left shoulder, drawn down diagonally to the right hip. Finally came the baptism of admission, dipping a cloth into the red liquid and touching the candidate's eyes, ears, nostrils and mouth. The lieutenant said, Your ears hear only the groans of tyrants and the cries of joy of a liberated peoples. The corpse of your enemy always smells sweet. Your lips are sealed with the blood of tyrants. The Carbonaria would continue to grow and play a significant role even after the French were expelled from Naples and would expand up the peninsula and into the Papal States and the Romagna. You may remember Filippo Buonarroti from part one, being arrested shortly after Napoleon entered Milan for his part in the conspiracy of the equals. Buonarroti would in the 1820s go on to introduce 
the Carabonier Démocratique Universale into France itself, making it significant as an international organisation. In the 1820s and 30s, they would be behind many significant rebellions in Italy, but would peter out by the 40s, with Mazzini's Young Italy taking many of its former members. The Carboneria will re-enter this story soon. I will now briefly discuss the economic changes that Napoleon brought to Italy, as I am now drawing nearer to the end of this episode and period of Napoleonic rule in Italy. Napoleon brought about four key economic restructures to Italy. Firstly, as previously discussed, land ownership. Secondly, new professional jobs. Thirdly, many new liberties. And fourthly, improvements in communication. The first point of land ownership is perhaps the most significant. There were three main changes to land ownership under Napoleon. The sale of church lands, the ending of feudalism, and the introduction of enclosure. All of these changes led to many new Italians owning land, creating a new class of land-owning peasants which may be best exemplified with statistics. For example, in Bologna, before Napoleonic rule, the church had 19% of the land, nobles 55%, middle classes 18%. Just seven years later, in 1804, the church held 4%, the nobles 50%, and the middle classes now 34%. And in Naples, there were 200,000 new landowners by 1815, compared with 20 years earlier. As a result of this changing ownership of land, a new social class was formed of peasants who bought up amounts of this cheap land, and who became known as Kulaks. These Kulaks became extremely unpopular among the peasantry, as these Kulaks quickly began to enclose their land in an attempt to maximise their own profits, which resulted in the rest of the peasantry having to rely on ever smaller communal lands. Many of these changes would not be undone during the Restoration years. Feudalism would not be brought back, and enclosure remained. Much of the church lands would stay in the hands of the Kulaks and new middle classes, with only a small amount being granted back to the church. The changes to land ownership under Napoleon were importantly changes for Italy and were significant modernizations 
of the Italian states. Although initially it brought mixed economic results, it was in the long term very significant for Italy's development and its attempts to drag itself away from becoming a backwater. The second economic change Napoleon brought to Italy can be seen in employment. By forcing out the old ruling elite and nobility and bringing in a much more developed form of state, it created many new job opportunities for the middle and professional classes within the state bureaucracy. Thus, a new class of professional bureaucrats were created. Men and women whose outlook were broader than the old 18th century states, and whose formation was homogenous and based on comparatively meritocratic criteria. Furthermore, the constitutional regimes had given unprecedented opportunities of political discussion and participation to the more articulate sections of Italian society. Thirdly, the French brought with them liberty, which significantly changed the previously highly illiberal Italian states, the most important being in terms of trade. In pre-Napoleonic Italy, there were numerous customs barriers hindering trade for the sake of fiscal advantage. In 1750, there were 498 such impediments in Piedmont alone. Napoleon changed all this. By uniting many of the northern Italian states, they were effectively forced into approving and creating new trade links. Italy became more interconnected with trade than potentially ever before. By joining the continental blockade of Britain, it opened up Italian markets to the rest of mainland Europe. Although this did damage many of the Italian port cities that had previously had strong links to Britain, Genoa and Naples became virtually derelict. Italian-French trade, however, unsurprisingly skyrocketed, and Napoleonic governments continued to encourage agriculture in Italy, though with the special aim of promoting the cultivation of crops which could provide substitutes for commodities rendered scarce by the British blockade of ocean trade routes. Coffee was a failure, sugar beet a success. However, the French did not foster other Italian industries, except insofar as this was conductive to imperial aims, because the objective of their policy was primarily to exploit Italian supplies of raw materials for the benefit of French manufacturers. Hence, the Italian silk industry suffered severely 
Nevertheless, many Italian traders did benefit from the new openness and accessibility of Italian markets. But, as well as liberalising trade, many people benefited from the introduction of divorce and the religious liberty that demolished the ghetto walls. Indeed, the temporal power of the Pope came to an end in Italy, as Pope Pius VI was carried off to France in 1799 and there died. His successor, Pope Pius VII, had been elected in Venice because of the French occupation of the mainland. He too was soon under restraint in France, and in 1809, the temporal power of the papacy was officially declared to be at an end. This was a hugely significant event for Italian politics and society, and would have a lasting legacy of weakening the Pope's authority even after the Restoration in 1815. Fourthly and lastly, Napoleon revolutionised communication within Italy, which had a huge impact on the Italian economy. Firstly, the changing of many state borders meant that cities that had previously been hostile to each other now had to work together within the same state which necessitated improved communication. Furthermore, from 1806 onwards, the entire peninsula fell under the direction of the French. This meant that even though there were multiple states still occupying the peninsula, their leaders were all relatives of Napoleon, and therefore were pulling in the same direction, which required the peninsula to work together. Just to quickly highlight the nature of Napoleonic Italy's leadership, not only did Napoleon appoint one brother, Joseph, and one brother-in-law, Murat, to be kings, but also one sister, Caroline, became a queen, his stepson Eugene, a viceroy, and another brother-in-law, Prince Borghese, governor-general of the departments beyond the Alps, Piedmont, Parma, and Liguria. One sister, Pauline, was given the small duchy of Gustala, which she happily sold back to its donor for six million francs, while another, Alicia, became Princess of Piombino, Princess of Lucca, and Grand Duchess of Tuscany. Furthermore, each leader was forced to suffix Napoleon to their names, so that Alicia became Princess Alicia Napoleon, and Murat became King Joachim Napoleon. For centuries prior to this, there had always been great bitterness, envy, and mistrust between the ruling houses within Italy. 
This change under Napoleon cannot be underestimated. As well as a greater willingness and need for communication among the states, Napoleon also helped improve the ability to communicate through extensive road-building programs, as the French built fine new roads across the Alps and Apennines, a notable contribution to the unification of a country whose internal communications had been so poor. If you would like to learn more about the impact of Napoleonic rule in Italy, you may go to the storyofhistory.com website, where you can find book recommendations and further reading, as well as the bibliography for this episode. I will now briefly recap what I have discussed so far in this podcast. The podcast started with an in-depth look into how Napoleon won control of Italy, a campaign which would, as we have seen, revolutionise the Italian peninsula. I then talked about the essay writing competition, and later the plundering of Italy's artworks by the Napoleonic army. This was significant as it would divide Italians between devoted opposition to the godless, plundering French and those who supported the liberal ideas and found opportunities within the French order to work. But in the meantime, on both sides, ideas of Italy that Napoleon had put out there began to appeal to both those in opposition and those in support of revolutionary France. I then introduced Vittorio Alfieri and his ideas and poetry, which were extremely hostile to French rule and promoted ideas of independence, which soon became more widely shared among a developing group of patrioti as the idea of an Italian nation began to take shape. I then talked about the Neapolitan French War, which began with French victory and the establishment of the Parthenopian Republic, however, ended with the French being expelled from almost all of Italy and brutal reprisals in the Neapolitan capital of Naples, which acted as an enlightening case study into the social divides which had begun to emerge in Italy. I then looked at Napoleon's creation of the Kingdom of Italy and his elaborate coronation, which starkly contrasted with the incident at Crespino only a few months later. I then went back to look at the development of artwork in Italy under Napoleon, focusing on symbolisms and linking to Alfieri and his tombstone, and how this was able to create imagery around Italy 
which would help to further the sense and feeling of a national community, which was developed greatly in the military. As discussed when looking at the Kingdom of Italy and the loyalty that many soldiers began to feel for the Italian Tricolore. I then turned my attention to the banditry and secret societies that began to emerge in Italy. Again with a national overture and focused on southern Italy where resistance was greatest and the secret societies and bandits strongest. I then finally turned to the economic changes Napoleon brought to Italy, from land ownership to new jobs and the liberties and improvements in communication across the peninsula. I will now begin to talk about the collapse of Napoleonic rule and the restoration and what legacies of Napoleon would survive long into the coming story and long into the character of the Italian nation. Napoleonic rule in Italy was now beginning to wane as the strategic defeats in Russia and at Leipzig began to test the loyalty of many of his allies in Italy. The old stable Italy had been destroyed. Men hoped or feared that society could be easily restructured by its rulers. But who, now, had a legitimate claim to rule? Italians found themselves living in a conflict-ridden, uncertain world where people could no longer trust their neighbours and where plots and violent insurrections were now commonplace. Such a world required strong government, but by 1814, the French were in retreat. The result, power struggle. In Sicily, power was in the hands of Lord William Bentinck. In the 1800s, he persuaded King Ferdinand and the Sicilians to accept a constitution and a parliament, and was acting as a representative of the British in the region, generally protecting British commercial interests. However, in the 1810s, he was directed towards a new objective of planning and preparing take back Italy from the French. Like many Englishmen of his background, he harboured feelings of nostalgic sympathy for the land of Augustus and Virgil. But there were also pragmatic geopolitical considerations to his concept of Italian independence. If, he told the Foreign Secretary, Lord Castlereagh, in July 1814, the national energy of the Italians could be roused as in Spain and Germany. This great people, instead of being, as formerly, 
the despicable slaves of a set of miserable petty princes, would become a powerful barrier against both Austria and France. One of his first acts was to establish contact with the members of the secret societies in northern and southern Italy and urge them to action. Revolts led by the Carbonari did break out in late 1813 and early 1814 against Joachim Murat in parts of Calabria and the Abruzzi. However, they were local in character, lacked strong mass support, and were quite easily extinguished. Not giving up, he again tried to see if any insurrectionary spark existed, and this time tried in Tuscany. On the 9th of March 1814, he landed a small Anglo-Sicilian force on the Tuscan coast at Livorno. A few days earlier, he issued a proclamation calling on Italians to put their trust in Britain, take up arms and fight the French. There was no response. He then marched up the coast and liberated Genoa, and suspecting, quite rightly, that the British government had plans to hand the city over to the fiercely reactionary King of Sardinia once the war was over, an idea that horrified him, he decided to try and forestall this by restoring the old republic in keeping with what he felt were the general wishes of the Genoese nation. Whilst Bentinic was marching to Genoa, the Austrians were marching to Milan, where a power struggle ensued. There was feverish talk about salvaging an independent state from the wreckage of the Kingdom of Italy. But the Milanese nobility could not agree on who to propose as their new ruler. A group of so-called pure Italians, led by Count Federico Confalonieri, wanted almost anyone, provided he was not French, and looked to the British to save them from the clutches of the Austrians. But others hankered after Joachim Murat of Naples, or even Eugène de Buhanes, and still others had their eye on the Archduke Francis, an Austrian but born in Milan. On the 17th of April 1814, the elderly Francesco Melzi di Aril tried to force the issue in favour of Buhanes, but this action so incensed the pure Italians that they unleashed a mob on the city, which lynched the finance minister and overturned the government. Buhanes threw in the towel and handed Lombardy to the Austrians, 
who entered Milan on the 28th of April, 18 years to the day after Napoleon had signed the armistice of Churrasco, which had opened the way to the occupation of Northern Italy by the French. In Naples and Southern Italy, a similar story was unfolding. Murat, King of Naples, like Eugene, had fought with Napoleon in Russia. But afterwards, with the French in retreat, he hurried back to Naples to try and save his throne. He quickly made a pact with the Austrians, and he brought up an army from Naples to confront or pretend to confront Eugene. This attempt failed to win support from the British, who did not trust him and still wanted to replace him with Ferdinand. So Murat decided to change tack again. In March 1815, on hearing that Napoleon had abandoned planting olives in Alba to have another stab at being emperor, a desperate Murat offered his services to his brother-in-law, but was rebuffed, perhaps fatally, as Napoleon later recognised that Murat's skills as a cavalry commander may have changed the result at Waterloo. Finally, Murat turned to his last remaining option. Earlier in the year, his sister, Alicia, had said of the Tuscans within her duchy that ideas of independence had spread so widely in the last two months that she believed they would submit to them if they could finish up being ruled by a prince of their own. He thus decided to make an impassioned call for Italian unity. Providence is at last calling you to be an independent nation. From the Alps to the Straits of Sicily can be heard a single cry, Italian independence. By what title do foreigners deny you this primacy right of every people? By what right do they lord it over your beautiful country, taking your wealth elsewhere and conspiring your children to fight and die far from the tombs of their ancestors? Was it in vain that nature created the Alps as your defence and gave you that even greater barrier provided by differences of language, customs and character? No! Away with foreign domination! You were once masters of this world and have expatiated your glory in 20 years of slaughter and oppression. But today, you can recover that glory by breaking free from your masters. 80,000 soldiers from Naples, led by their king, have sworn not to rest until they have liberated Italy. We call on Italians from every province to help this great design. 
Let every free man who has the courage and intelligence learn to speak for Italy to every true Italian. If national energies can be fully realized, that will decide if Italy will be free or else humiliated and enslaved for future centuries. In all, only about 500 volunteers responded to Murat's patriotic proclamation. After an unsuccessful battle at Tolentino, Murat fled to France. But in October, in one last desperate throw of the dice, he returned to southern Italy with a band of 250 faithful followers in a last desperate bid to recover the throne of Naples. He found nothing but hostility among the local Calabrians, and after being cornered by the Bourbon troops on the coast, he was taken to the fort of Pizzo and on the 13th of October was executed by firing squad. The last words of this innkeeper's son from a little village in southern France, who in the tempestuous world of passion, ideals, opportunism, and seemingly endless possibilities thrown up by the French Revolution, had risen to become a general, a marshal, a grand duke, and a king, were Spare my face, aim for my heart. His fate demonstrated that Alicia had been wrong. The cry, if it existed, had not been heard, and the ideas of independence had not spread far. As Napoleon's armies collapsed and Napoleon was eventually sent to St. Helena, Austria and Britain began the restoration of Italy to its pre-Napoleonic state. There were a few minor changes. The Kingdom of Piedmont was given back Nice and Savoy, as well as Liguria, meaning the Kingdom of Genoa became no more. Venice remained annexed to Austria and would not have its republic restored, and similarly Lombardy was placed under Austrian control. The small states of Parma, Modena and Lucca kept their lands, although were again brought under Austrian influence. The Grand Duchy of Tuscany was able to maintain some independence, but leaned politically towards Austria, who had now become the hegemon in the peninsula. The temporal power of the Pope was restored, with the Pope regaining not only Rome, but also the papal legations, which spread out into the Emilia-Romagna region and to the Adriatic Sea. And finally, Ferdinand 
was placed back onto the throne of Naples. Many Italian patriots were dismayed by this outcome. After several years of devoted service to Joachim Murat, Vincenzo Cuoco found the return of the Bourbons hard to stomach and suffered a mental breakdown from which he never fully recovered. He died in 1823. Ugo Foscolo was for a time tempted to throw in his lot with the Austrians, but could not bring himself to swear an oath of loyalty to the Emperor. He went into exile, first in Switzerland and then England, where he stayed till his death in 1827. The restoration may have seemed on the surface to have washed away all the changes of the previous 18 years. The map and rulers were largely unchanged in 1815 from the map and rulers in 1797. The old reactionary nobility regained most of their posts, and religion once again became state-sponsored. However, looking under this newly restored surface lurked many deeply ingrained legacies of the Republican French. Far more than the restored monarchs would have liked to admit. By 1815, Italy had passed through a social, political and constitutional revolution. There had come into being a sizeable body of moderate reformers, made up of those who had benefited under Napoleon, who were unhappy of the loss of freedom and opportunities the restoration brought with it. Perhaps most importantly, the opening of political discourse that Napoleonic rule encouraged, alongside the removal of old state borders and dynasties had meant that the national question was now much more widespread. The same people who, in 1797, had never heard of Italy, and when asked where they were from, would respond with their town or city and would look on those in the neighbouring town or city with great suspicion, now began to wonder, having grown much closer and more integrated with their neighbours, whether the real enemy might actually be Austria, and whether they were really were Milanese, Turinese, Florentine or Venetian, or if rather they were Italian. For those who had served in the Napoleonic armies, there was a great deal of emotion and meaning now attached to Italy, which had begun being displayed in artwork, sculptures, literature, and even politics. A meaning and emotion 
which began to permeate all of Italian society and was most readily picked up by the intellectuals, politicians and moderates who now formed a significant portion of society. This new group of patrioti would begin to take over existing or create new underground secret societies which had been born initially in opposition to French rule but turned now to opposition of conservative Austrian rule. Their objectives became distinctly patriotic, the most renowned being Young Italy, founded by Giuseppe Mazzini. After all, if the peninsula's myriad of entities could be reduced to three, might they not one day end up as one? As well as ideas, certain laws of the Napoleonic regime survived, such as the ending of feudalism, enclosure, and many of the inefficient ways of tax collection. Although most laws were still revoked and overturned, this actually made many more people, including the conservatives, realize that they had actually benefited from the introduction of divorce, the improvement in roads, the new fairer system of inheritance, and the religious liberty that demolished ghetto walls, but also made many politicians and intellectuals realize that the introduction of Napoleonic codes of law, together with fiscal and institutional reforms, were essential foundations of a modern nation-state. Yet alongside moderate reformers and the patrioti were the conservatives, who were generally highly religious or wealthy and able to exploit the old feudal system. These conservatives controlled once again all the political institutions after the restoration, and thus were able to control society to a degree. However, the moderate reformers and conservative restorationists would, over the coming decades, begin to challenge each other ever more openly in the political arena. A conflict which we have already seen fought in 1806 with Cardinal Rufo's Christian army against the Republicans in Naples. This battle would shape the future of Italy, a battle which may likely never have been fought had Napoleon not brought ideas of liberty and nation to Italy in 1797. What I hope has been clear in this first feature episode 
in parts one, two, and three, is that Italy in 1797 was almost a forgotten word, devoid of any meaning and confined only to a few intellectual conversations. Napoleon's invasion shocked Italy into waking up. Old states disappeared, new rulers were put into place, and political discourse was opened up. During this time, people began to attach new meaning to the word Italy. For those who served in the Kingdom of Italy's military, the shared suffering that they had endured with their fellow Italian under the green, white and red tricolore would be infused into Italian artworks and literature, embedding deep patriotic emotions into the idea of an Italian nation. Likewise, those who supported aspects of Napoleonic rule, the liberties, freedoms, opportunities, morals, or laws, in their despair at seeing the old ways return, began to attach their hopes of a better life and a better state to Italy. Now, not only was an idea being born, a nation was. In 1814, Count Clemens von Metternich dismissed Italy as being merely a geographical expression. In 1805, when Napoleon made himself King of Italy, he did not make himself king of a geographical expression. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. I will try and bring the next episode out as quickly as possible, but for now, thank you for listening.